you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6 with me as we continue uh, in a series that is focused on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called Discipleship 101. I hope you've been reading uh, along in, in these passages as we go over them every Sunday. Uh, we do put the, the passages on the screen, and, uh, but I hope you, you kind of look at them too because as I've mentioned before, the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, has, has pieces in it that's, that's connected. And sometimes those connections are a little nuanced, but, but we try to bring them together. We try to bring them out in the sermon. But also, if you read them, uh, I think you'll get that even, even more so as you read as we go along. Uh, I, do, I do like to read. Uh, I, I'm kind of a book nerd. Uh, when Michelle and I had a, a sort of a weekend uh, date and we went to see a, a, a show in, in Cedar Park and I had to stop at Half Price Books uh, just because I like to browse and see what's there. and They call it half-price books, but sometimes it's more like three-quarter-price books. You know, it's, it's used books at, uh, at, at, at somewhat discounted prices. Uh, but we're kind of spoiled when it comes, or I am, when it comes to, to books with, with the advent of, of Amazon. You know, everyone knows what Amazon.com is at this point. And uh, we've kind of been spoiled by, by that whole... Really, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Amazon was invented and, and the platform that they really pushed was, was books. That was kind of who they were and that was why they, that was the main reason they existed. And of course, they've, they've spread everything. You can buy toilet paper and diapers on Amazon now and, and a lot of people do. We've, we've bought diapers and got, uh, got really good deals on there and so people use it for everything. But I remember working in the library at college. I worked in the library, which probably shouldn't surprise you. And I remember working in there, and people would come in the library, and this was before the days of smartphones. It was before the days of tablets, and so the only internet access you had were computers or laptops. And people would come into the library, uh, freshmen in college with their parents, maybe looking around the campus, and, and they would talk about uh, textbooks and the price of textbooks. And, and I would overhear their lamenting. And this was just when Amazon was, was taking off, and I discovered Amazon, and that was how I bought my textbooks. And so uh, you would have lots of parents in there, and I would say, have you ever heard of Amazon.com? And they would say, Amazon what? Amazon who? If you can imagine someone not knowing what that is. And, and I would explain to them, well, it's this website, and you can get books, all kinds of books, uh, either from them or from a third-party seller, and, and they're heavily discounted, and... Uh, they, you know, they were kind of skeptical because we were really skeptical about buying things on the Internet for a while, weren't we? We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to use a credit card and give that, and I understand that. But I would bring up Amazon on, on the computer at the desk as they were in, and I would bring up their, their students' psychology 101 textbook that cost $120. And I would say, well, here it is for $40, and they were sold on it. Now, what's that website again? And I got, of course, I got joy out of helping someone save money like because I enjoy that now the university probably wouldn't have appreciated a student worker in the library you know uh, diverting their bookstore profits but all the bookstores eventually had to, to find ways to compete with Amazon and, and uh, one of the things that Amazon has done that's really uh, revolutionized the way people read books is is the invention of the Kindle or the Kindle reading app if you have a, a phone that you maybe some people read on their phone or your tablet uh, and so people use those things to read books. And, and I went through a phase when, when they first came out. Michelle got me a Kindle. And, and it was really interesting to hold one of those things. And, and you know you're looking at a screen. But it looks like you're looking at a piece of paper. And that was really neat. 
Uh, and then I would, would use my tablet for a while after I got an iPad. And, and I've kind of gone back full circle. I, I've just become a, a, a you know, I, I just like holding books. There's something about turning the pages and having the book in your hand. And uh, so I've gone back to that. But a lot of people still, that's the way they read. They read off their tablet. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it, it's helpful, isn't it? It, it, shaves, it saves shelf space. It, uh, it saves money because a lot of times electronic books are, are cheaper than a brand new book. Uh, and it just, it's economical. It makes, makes sense. You don't have to carry a bunch of books around. You got it right there on your tablet or your Kindle. And one of the things that Amazon has, has done is that just like anything else that you do digitally uh, that's connected to the internet, they've, they've tracked not only what people read. Now, you can turn this off on your device, but most people don't even know that you can do that or think about doing it. But, but they have a, a way to track what you read. And not only what you read, but what you highlight. You, know, you can highlight books in Kindle, the things that you highlight or the notes that you make about certain parts in books. And so they have, have tracked this and they've actually released uh, the information on, on, on what some people have highlighted in some of the most best-selling and well-known books like The Hunger Games, uh, the Harry Potter series, Pride and Prejudice. And, and I find that pretty interesting that you can go and read what everybody is, is highlighting. And I find even more interesting that they've also released what... What people have highlighted the most in the Bible. And, and now you have to remember, that's just the people that read the Bible and, and the Kindle format. That's not everybody, but, but probably a good number of people, what they have highlighted in their Bible. And I would think that maybe John 3.16 would be one, the, the most popular, but it's not. I think maybe the 23rd Psalm, but it's not. I think maybe even the Lord's Prayer that we talked about last week might be one that's highlighted, but it's not. Would you believe that the most highlighted verse comes out of Philippians? It's Philippians, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. According to Amazon, this is what most was this is the most highlighted uh, two verses in Scripture out of people that read the Bible on, on the Kindle or Kindle app. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Any idea why people might highlight that? Well, that might strike a chord with people as they're reading the Bible. Now, I don't have statistics to back it up, but I feel like we're a more anxious society today than, than maybe we ever have been. As, as we become more affluent, we have more things to worry about when there's... There's more things going on. We're aware of things that happened that today that we wouldn't have even been aware of. And it naturally makes us more anxious, more, more worried. And we would love to do what that verse in Scripture says, to just not be anxious about anything, wouldn't we? Well, the problem is it's just not as simple as pushing a button or flipping a switch and say, oh, I'm just not worried, right? And maybe that's how you've heard a lot of sermons about worry and, and anxiousness. The preacher just don't worry. <laughs> just, just pray. Just trust God. And, and, and there's truth. I mean, it is true. But it's not as, as simple as just, just doing it. It's like the Nike slogan, right? And so as we look in the Sermon on the Mount at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 about worrying, He doesn't say just, just don't do it. Or, or as the, the song says, don't worry, be happy, right? He doesn't say that. What he does do is the same thing he does with all these other topics that we've looked at. 
He tells his disciples the way that he understands this and the way that they should understand it as disciples. Jesus recognizes that worrying, and he tells his disciples this, is incompatible. He recognizes that worrying is incompatible with true discipleship. And that's going to be tough for me to talk about because I worry. But this is what Jesus is going to say. I invite you to to look with me in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Jesus tells us, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given you to you as well. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. Or even along with Paul and Philippians, that if you pray and if you submit this to God, well, then worrying is not going to be a struggle. He didn't even say that, even though I think that he believes that's true. But he explains to his disciples why worrying and being anxious is, is not compatible with following him. And he lists several reasons. And then at the end, he'll tell them what they should do. And I think this is the good part that we'll get to at the end. What they should do instead of worrying. He doesn't just say don't do it. He says it's not compatible with being a disciple. And this is what you do instead. First, he says that worrying is incompatible with being a disciple because quite obviously it doesn't really accomplish anything, does it? Worrying doesn't do anything. Anyone here own a, a treadmill? You want to own up to that? Anybody own a treadmill? Come on, be honest. If you have a treadmill, raise your hand. And how many of you use the treadmill? Hey, look at there. We do. Some of us do. You know, treadmills, we think of, of these items that we use because, or, or own and don't use. But the purpose of using them is to, to help us feel better. Uh, maybe help us lose weight. It, it's something that we choose to do. Uh, but I read, I read that in Victorian England, Elise Fitzpatrick writes about treadmills in Victorian England. And she says, treadmills, actually they were called tread wheels. It's the same basic concept, but they're not motorized. It was just sort of a canvas with some ro- very elemental rollers. They weren't used as something for people to exercise. People wanted to run. They just went for a run. You know, they didn't have to do it indoors. But they would use treadmills or tread wheels as punishment in prisons. And so prisoners that were sentenced to, uh, you know, a, a life in prison or a certain amount of time in prison, they would make run on, on tread wheels. And sometimes these tread wheels would be hooked up to some pulleys and belts, and, and it would have some kind of elemental task that they were helping accomplish, maybe grinding wheat or something like that. And, and so what they were doing was actually uh, accomplishing something, but often 
it, it wouldn't be for any reason. It would just be, this is part of your punishment. And so they would serve out their days on, on this treadmill knowing that, that they're doing all that work. And, and we kind of do that with prisoners. Sometimes we give them tasks and things to do. But at least, you know, if they're picking up trash on the highway, they can say, at the end of the day, I got the road clean, you know. Prisoners would run on these treadmills knowing that at the end of the day that, that nothing would be accomplished as a result. And they exerted all that energy and all that effort. In a sense, it's a form of, of punishing themselves. Jesus said that's, that's how worry is. It exerts all this energy and all this effort and it doesn't accomplish anything. And it's not an accident that Jesus talks about worry in the Sermon on the Mount right in the spot that he does immediately after he has, he says those famous words, those famous words about money. Remember what he said about money? You can't serve both God and money. And so he goes from there to talk about worry because those things are obviously for him in his mind, they're, they're connected. He's not just saying, well, just don't worry. He's saying all these things that most people worry about, that is centered around money and, and possessions and, and having things. He's saying if you are truly a disciple, he's not saying just don't worry about it. He's saying you don't have to worry about it. You are able to not worry about it because, because you are in a different place than everybody else. You see things differently as a disciple. You're able to see what really matters. It's, it's not, not worrying isn't about just ignoring problems or, or telling yourself to be happy even if you're not. It's about prioritizing for Jesus what, what is lasting, what is eternal, and, and what sometimes is, is only temporary. And Jesus was really good at illustrations. He talks about the birds of the air. You know, and, and, and isn't that just wonderful imagery? We, we've read these words so many times and we think about the birds and how they seem careless. And, and what a great illustration he gives us. And I think it's no surprise as he's talking about this. Again, he refers to God as taking care of the birds. And he calls them in the same way that he did when we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Your heavenly Father that cares about you. And wants to take care of them. Wants to see them have good things. You remember that illustration he gave when we talked about the Lord's Prayer. That he says, if people, as, as messed up and sometimes as, as evil as we are. Gosh, if we kind of naturally want to take care of our kids. Have those words. How much more does God want to take care of us? Verse 27. He, he's asked, as, as a result of all this. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And life can literally mean stature, physical stature, or, or age. And, and hour can mean a, a measurement, like a cubit. And so he's saying in as literal terms as possible that worrying you, you, it doesn't add anything that you can measure to your life. It doesn't accomplish anything, but we do it. And, and I think it's important to note at this part, but before I make you feel bad for worrying... That Jesus is not talking about just being concerned. I think we should make a distinction between that. There, there's worrying, but there's also being concerned. And I think the difference is that when we're concerned about things, it's things that really we have the right priorities about. You know, if something happens to one of your children, they're in the hospital, you're going to be concerned about them. Jesus wouldn't tell you, ah, oh, don't worry about that. If, if something happens to a friend, if they're in an accident, you should be Concerned about them. There are things worth being concerned about. But Jesus is talking about when he uses the word worry. 
He's not talking about things that, that we have prioritized rightly as followers of Christ. He's talking about physical things, status, things that in the kingdom of God are not as important as we make them out to be. And so, uh, Jesus also says this. I think the other thing to recognize is He says this to disciples. He says this to people who are supposed to be taking what He says and living that out together as disciples. And so when He says, don't worry, He's not saying, oh, just go home and tell yourself not to worry and, and deal with it. He's saying, don't worry. And, and if you do, it's kind of the background of that is, is you're together as a group. And, and, and as Paul says, you bear one another's burdens. And so if you find yourself worrying in the sense that Jesus is talking about and, and you've tried not to, well, well, maybe it is the time that you reach out to someone, maybe a Christian friend, maybe a Sunday school teacher. Gosh, maybe even a counselor. You know, there's no shame in that. We think there is sometimes. And, and, and say, look, I'm, I just can't get over this. I'm struggling with this because that is not God's will. He would rather you seek that help out. And he wants someone to help you than he wants you to spend Needless, effortless, fruitless time worrying. It's incompatible with discipleship. And Jesus also recognizes that worrying lacks faith in what God provides, in God's provision. I read a story that Dallas Willard wrote. He's passed away, but Dallas Willard is just someone that I've, I've greatly admired uh, regarding what is written about discipleship and spiritual formation. And uh, he, he lost his mother at a young age. And he wrote a story about a little boy whose mother had died. And, and he said, uh, you know, the boy was, was five or six. And, and it really, and he was at that age where it would really impact him. And, and he was left alone with his father. And he said the little boy late at night would, would start missing his mother. And he would uh, get out of his bed, as, as common the kids do anyway. But he'd get out of his bed and he'd get in bed with his father. But it wasn't just enough that he was in the same bed as his father. Uh, it wasn't enough that he was close to his father. He would, he would wake his dad up and he would say, Dad, will you turn toward me? Will you turn your face toward me? And, and his dad would sleepily, you know, turn and he, he'd face him. And he, and he would turn over, the little boy. And he would say, Dad, are you facing me? Are you looking at me? And his dad would say, yes, I'm looking at you. And he could finally go to sleep. That story reminded me of, of the blessing that the priest Aaron is charged to give to the people of Israel when they make a vow to the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Because that act, that act had so many nuances. It, it was a, a symbol of God's favor, of God's presence. Of God's care. It was an act of provision. But most importantly, it was solely based on this idea of God actually caring about his people and wanting good things for them. And Jesus says this character of God is seen in the fact that not only the birds, but, but the flowers of the field. And he gives that illustration about how the flowers of the field don't toil or spin. And so he moves from these, these animals, birds that are animated and, and they have some agency over themselves and they try to take care of who they are, you know, they're, they're young and they go out and build nests. They do all this stuff. Now, they're not like people. They don't, they don't store away in barns, right? And they don't sow seed on the ground, but, but they have some agency over themselves. They try to take care of themselves. He moves from, from that to flowers. They just sit there. 
and have no agency over what they get or what they don't get whatsoever. And they're totally dependent upon their environment to take care of them. And the point is not that God is saying, be like the birds or be like the flowers. He's not saying, well, just sit there and, and, you know, God will just take care of you. No, he's saying, if you look at these things that that were given to people to to have to be under dominion for people to have dominion over. If you look at those things that God takes care of, how much more? Remember those words? How much more is God going to care for for people? Verse three on your screen. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? In Jesus's day, they had ovens, uh, pottery ovens. And and to get them to to heat up, they would often use grass. Well, because it was free (laughs) and it was available. So they would burn grass to heat up these ovens. And often the Hebrew prophets will, will talk about the fire. And we'll talk about the fire in the way Jesus does, thrown into the fire. And it's this imagery of, 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 you know, have you ever seen grass burn, how it just kind of almost melts and, and it turns into this thin, stringy, black junk? I mean, that was a physical reminder of this is what happens, you know, when things are thrown into the fire, when they're apart from God. Like, like that grass that really God doesn't care about as much as he cares about people. And so Jesus takes this image of of judgment and wrath and and he spins it on top of his head to talk about God's provision and his assurance. He's saying, if you are a follower of me, then then you are are redeemed. You have something different. And not only is it going to save you from, from being apart from God, but that should influence what you think about and and, and how you know that God is going to take care of you. But you know, provision, when we think about God taking care of us, it's not about just necessities, is it? It's not a just about the basic stuff. That's kind of what Jesus talks about. But it also goes everything from, from, from a spouse to children to our goals to our abilities to, to strength, strength, just having strength to make it through the day. We talk about the old thing. Well, God provides, you know, and, and, and it's true. He does. But what we usually mean when we say God provides is, gosh, I sure hope God gives me what I want. That, that's what we think God's provision is. What about what God wants to provide you? I mean, have you even thought about that? Like, this is what I want, but what is it that God wants me to have? Jesus tells his disciples at the end of that, he calls them, oh, you of little faith. And one commentator interprets that. uh, You might as well say that the root of anxiety, Jesus is saying, is, is unbelief. It's not really believing that God is who he says he is. Unbelief that you're good enough. Unbelief that, that God can really provide you with something better than just the basic things or whatever it is that you might want. And that leads us to the most important reason that worry is not compatible with being a disciple. And this is the one that convicts me the most. Worry is not usually focused on what God cares about. Now, I'm very careful. I want to be very careful about the way I say that. When we worry, it's not usually focused on things that God cares about. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. Don't go home and say, oh, the preacher said Jesus doesn't love me. That's, that's not the message today. But the things that we worry about are usually not the things that are most important to God. God cares about you, but he doesn't care about everything that you care about. This past Christmas, Alice 
like she usually does, she gave all the kids that were in the Christmas program a gift. And uh, they were different things, stuffed animals. And, and one of the things that, that Luke got as one of his presents was, was this thing called a, a fidget spinner. Y'all know what that is? These are already old. No one even likes these anymore, right? They've been out a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, I remember when they came out and, and they were talked about less as a toy and, and more of this thing. Well, if you have a child that just fidgets all the time, fidget spinner, you know, it's, it's great for them because they can do that and they can, they, they can sit. And if they have a hard time listening in school or something or doing their homework, they can do that. And that gives them an outlet so they can fidget, you know, and do, whoa, they can do that. But they can also listen and, and concentrate and do, yeah, right. How well has that worked out, teachers? How many fidget spinners have you taken up? Some of you probably have drawerfuls of them. There's no way a kid is going to sit there and do that and not totally lose focus over every... Because I can't even stand up and do it at the same time. Worry is like that. It's, it's focus. When we worry about something, it's because we, we have good intentions, right? We're trying to focus on it and think about it and give our attention toward it. But, but it takes up so much of our attention that the things that God really wants us focused on that are right in front of our face sometimes often are neglected. Now, up until the verse on your screen, Jesus has said, basically, don't worry. <laughs> you shouldn't worry. Worrying is bad. You know, that's, that's the main point that he's making because, you know, it's focused on other things. But he's getting to the point of, of what you replace. With worry. And, and this is really the most important part because without this last tidbit, Jesus' words about worrying are, are not really that different from anything else you've heard. They're not that different from don't worry, be happy. That's not what Jesus says. He says, don't worry, but, verse 33 on your screen, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Being a disciple isn't just about not worrying about the things that the pagans worry about, Jesus says. It's about replacing those things with goals of far greater significance. You might remember when we talked about the Lord's Prayer last week. We divided it in two, but we really said the first part, if you get the first part, I mean the second part kind of takes care of itself. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God first? That's a hard concept for us to grasp. And, and I think it's hard for, for probably Americans in particular is because we don't live in a kingdom, right? We don't have a king physically. In, in our, we're used to being people who, who live in a government that allows us to have say-so over things. And we have agency and, and we vote. And they may not always do, politicians may not always do what makes us happy, but, but we still have some kind of say-so in the process. We don't just do whatever they tell us all the time. That actually goes against kind of what our instinct is. But to talk about the kingdom of God and to seek the kingdom of God over everything else means that we submit to it. We give ourselves to it. You know, the Bible never talks about God relating to us in a, in a democratic fashion, you know. Other than recognizing Christ as our Savior, and we get, I believe we get the choice to do that, but, but after that, it's, it's not, well, check yes if you want this, or no if you want that. No, God, God is, is a king. Christ is our king, and we are his, his servants. And, you know, if that idea bothers you, 
It's probably because it's probably because you, you've really bought into being an, an American, and that's really important to you, and that's a good thing that that's important to you. Jesus says the kingdom of God is more important than anything else. When Michelle and I were in college at East Texas Baptist, they would have chapel speakers come in, and often those chapel speakers were, were trying to get college students uh, to do different ministries, be a part of different things. Lots of times they would be representatives of, of mission organizations and they would encourage us to go on, on summer mission trips and, and to give our time in that way. Or even to consider going on, on, a, on a mission after we graduated college for, for a year or two. And, and kind of before we entered the workforce or whatever. And, and, and we heard a lot of that. And I'll admit, I, I got to the point after four years to where I, I didn't want to go to chapel because I thought, well, what are they going to make me feel bad about not doing it today? You know? And I thought, well, you know, here I am, this guy that's... I wasn't funding my college. I had generous scholarships and grants, and my grandfather helped out. But here I am, and, 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 and all this money is going towards my education, and it's supposed to build me up. It's supposed to, to prepare me for the real world. And, and they're going to go, and, and, and they're spending all this money on these speakers that, that really I don't think they're doing anything for me. They're asking things of me. College is supposed to prepare me for the real world. And the problem with my thinking is that the real world I was focused on was not necessarily the real world that the kingdom of God was focused on. And when we let the real world dictate our thoughts and our desires and our worries, we miss what is important to God. Can I paint a couple caricatures for you? I could put names on them as people that I know, but I'm not, I mean, it's just caricatures I've had in my life. Bob is a, a small business owner. He's started his business from the ground up and it's been very successful. You know people like that. Maybe that's you. And, and, and this small business is taking care of him and his family and he's giving his life and his soul and his blood and his sweat and his tears and it's enabled his kids. It's enabled his kids and his kids' kids and even their kids to go to college. And everyone is, is thankful to Bob and his family. Of course, he didn't have a lot of time for family or a church or anything like that, but that was a sacrifice that that he made and he thought was worth making. Tom is different from Bob. He works a regular day job. He works nine to five. And, uh, you know, as much as he tried, he just could not kind of get out of, of the daily grind. And, and, and he's a good, he's a hardworking guy, but he's just your average guy. But Tom loves his kids and he loves them so much that everything that they're involved in, he throws himself into it. And any spare money that he does have, he spends on them so they can go to, to camps or to workshops, or to be on select teams. And, and, and his whole life revolves around his kids and their activities and what they're doing. And no, he didn't get a lot of time to spend uh, with his wife. Church is, is maybe, maybe once a month, probably less than that. But gosh, he, he tries his best and he's there for his kids. You know, both those guys are successful. Both of them are successful in, in different ways and eyes the world. But I think Jesus would say they were often successful in the wrong ways. If you made a list of all the things that you worry about, all the things that, that are concerned, from finances to extracurricular activities, how many of those things would also be things that God worries about? Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider your kingdom, we consider what is important to you. 
God, I pray that you would allow us to expend our energy being concerned over important things. God, as we struggle with that and sometimes lapse into worrying over things that are basic and menial and, and, and really may not be important to you at all, God, would you, would you guide us and direct us and, and convict us of that? God, let us be disciples that seek to follow you and to be a part of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of the world. We ask in Jesus' name.